Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's SLIS Colloquia, a program now in our third year. Brought to you by your School of Library and Information Science at San Jose State University. I am Dr. Anthony Bernier, and along with Dale David, our technical engineer, we are producing this series as part of our school's mission to be recognized as a leader in graduate education in library and information science. Before I introduce today's speaker, however, a few uh, announcements. Please look for new colloquia presentations on the SLIS website at least every other week throughout the term, where you will also find a webcast archive of all of our previous presentations on the SLIS homepage at sliseweb.sjsu.edu. We also offer our colloquia as free podcasts, so you can freely share them with fellow students, colleagues, and associates. Details on how to access these presentations, either through RSS feeds or the iTunes store, can be found on the colloquia page. Viewers can now also watch the SLIS colloquia on blip.tv, the popular video sharing website. The SLIS blip TV channel can be accessed at sjsuslis.blip.tv. For our students, I'd like to invite you to visit SLIS 21, the school-wide blog maintained by our associate director, Dr. Linda Main. On the school's homepage, you will find SLIS 21, and it concentrates on school administration and curricular development, and even invites you for your ideas about new classes as well. And for everyone in the SLIS community, I'd like to invite you to participate in SLIS Life, the school's new social networking space. SLIS Life offers searchable profiles, messaging, and blogs in which you share experiences and ideas about your experience here at SLIS. Finally, if you are viewing this presentation before mid-November in 2008, the faculty heartily invite you to come to our huge and gathering event planned for the evening of Saturday, November 15th, called The Future is Within Reach, Student Scholarship Fundraiser, which will be held at San Jose's Museum of Art in beautiful downtown San Jose. We've scheduled this event to coincide with this year's library, uh, California Library Association Conference, and 100% of the proceeds go to SLIS student scholarships. As usual, the website contains all of the necessary details. Today is my pleasure to introduce a good friend of the school, uh, someone who's been a part-time instructor for us for many years and teaches uh, archives and manuscripts. Um, David DiLorenzo is a graduate of Simmons College Library School in Boston, Massachusetts. He held uh, a curatorial and management position there at uh, Gallaudet University the Maryland Historical Society and Harvard Law School. As an associate director and head of technical services at the renowned Bancroft Library at UC Berkeley, he's been there since 2001. David has extensive experience in the management of archives and special collections in various academic settings. His current responsibilities include all aspects of collection development management, including acquisitions, copy and original cataloging, serials, audiovisual materials, uh, manuscripts, archival, and pictorial collection processing. David is actively engaged in grant writing and grant funding, um, and he's uh, currently um, he's currently administering a grant funding uh, portfolio of over two million dollars. So it's my pleasure today, and on behalf of the faculty here at SLIS, to welcome uh, David DiLorenzo. 
Anthony, of course, asked me to talk about our, our recent building project um, at the Bancroft. You may know we renovated our building, which meant we, we actually had to leave the building for three years. They gutted it completely, and now we've just moved back uh, to a brand new facility. I hope you'll have a chance to, if you're at Berkeley, to, to visit us. It's a, quite a stunning uh, facility now, um, a real 21st century building. But I didn't want to talk about that because it's so painful an experience that uh, in my career, I think now it's uh, certainly been 28 years as a, an archivist and special collections librarian. This is my fourth building project, uh, and so I'm, I'm quite tired of them, frankly. Um, look, today I would like to talk about uh, the future of special collections uh, in the 21st century, and that sounds like something of a, uh, an ill uh, wind or an oxymoron to some extent, but um, my talk will uh, focus on three areas. First, I want to cover um, essentially what, what it is that we are today, uh, what are, secondly, the, the forces that are, are making us think about change. Uh, certainly, we've been engaged in a lot of those changes um, uh, uh, in the last 10 years or so. Um, but then I want to uh, have a little fun with this and, and make some, you know, hazard some guesses about what we're going to be looking at in another 10 years or so once. Uh, let, me, let me just say that to me the, the timeline on this is once Google has, of course, uh, uh, done a digital capture of the entire book world, um, then we'll, we'll see uh, vast changes in every, everything we do. We'll just use that as a, certainly a, a benchmark. Um, now to start with, what are uh, special collections? Um, I think it's uh, interesting to define that um, because people certainly in our profession have different ideas of what, what that means. Uh, I'm speaking here specifically about a library that holds rare books, uh, manuscripts, that is the private papers of individuals and or um, the papers of organizations. Uh, it includes uh, rare maps. Um, and uh, pictorial materials. Uh, certainly, it depends on what kind of special collections you're, you're located at, but at the, the Bancroft, our pictorial collections include photographic material. Um, they include artwork on paper. Um, they, they include posters, uh, uh, postcards, uh, the whole gamut of visual materials. Um, and then finally, institutional records. There are places, and, and let me just clarify that I think uh, most places at, at an academic institutions, you'll see the university archives under the umbrella of the special collections. Um, and, and certainly that's uh, at rare occasions uh, at large universities, they may have split it out in the 1960s or a little earlier than that. When I was at Harvard, um, certainly they had created their university archives in 1930 and it had continued to be a separate entity. And I think uh, has benefited from that, frankly. Um, in addition, special collection materials are non-circulating. Um, we don't loan them uh, out to people unless they're going to do uh, uh, item loans for exhibit purposes. Um, the majority of special collections, in my opinion, are located at universities. Uh, although I've worked at the Maryland Historical Society uh, as their library director, um, that was certainly uh, is it was a special collections and a museum, um, but uh, those are. Um, I think certainly under the umbrella, but most most special collections, in my opinion, are are with, within universities, and and because of that, they're also part of a larger library system. Um, usually, 
There are very few occasions uh, where you will see a special collections library independent from the library. Um, the, uh, the Bentley Historical Society uh, uh, Library, Bentley Historical Library at the University of Michigan is the only example I can think of where the special collections library is, reports directly to the uh, academic affairs vice president. Now, um, now that we've got an understanding of what that is, what is the role of special collections? Traditionally, it has been that we collect material. Um, and most of this stuff is uh, historical in nature. Um, it has some value in that sense. Um, once once it's, you know, it's collected, we appraise it. Uh, we do certainly uh, appraisal can occur uh, before the materials arrives or, or after, once it starts being processed or cataloged. Um, we can eliminate things and decide based on their values what what should be eliminated. Um, we are also engaged in preservation. Mostly that work has been, uh, in my opinion, uh, of a generic nature. Uh, archivists change folders uh, from acid folders to acid-free folders. They put things in acid-free boxes. Um, and, and when there, there's need to do more specific conservation kind of work, um, if you're fortunate to have your own preservation uh, uh, department in your university, like we do at, at Berkeley, then you can send things down to be to be fixed, repaired, and made better. Um, and then we're engaged also in description of the material, uh, using sometimes some quirky, uh, unique ways of doing that. Um, rare book cataloging, for example, uh, and the, the the way that archivists uh, think about collections at the collection level, creating finding aids uh, for that purpose. Um, they're very different kinds of cataloging and description work that I think you usually see in a general library. And then finally, of course, access. Um, and usually the access issues here are uh, dominated by um, you come to us, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, okay, uh, the traditional roles, it seems to me um, that collecting has been based on a uh, rather a written policy, an acquisition policy. Um, and that can be defined uh, geographically by time. Um, Bancroft's policy is about a 200-page document that um, basically says, I think, if you can winnow it down, uh, that we collect anything related to uh, California and the American West. Um, of course, there are these opportunities sometimes that things fall outside of that, but. Um, um, and certainly that doesn't affect the rare book collection because uh, we collect uh, material from France, China, you, you, you name it. Um, and, um, and that's always this, this kind of a quirky thing that I think you see with special collections uh, libraries. Um, appraisal, in my opinion, has always been based on what we call the life cycle model. Uh, this is developed by the, uh, Schellenberg at the um, uh, National Archives. Uh, and it is uh, essentially a paper-based model that has been very effective for making decisions about um, values, uh, particularly in what Schellenberg called the secondary values of, of material. Um, specifically, what is their research value for researchers who have PhDs in history? Um, description has been based on a model of more um, with more, uh, not less is more, um, which is, I think, uh, something I will talk about in a minute, but traditionally it has been more with more. Um, we, we will describe our archival collections down to the item level, 
certainly after the World War II, that diminished. And in the 70s, archivists de developed uh, the finding aid structure, and it went to the folder level description. Um, but that's still very labor intensive. And there has been a, a move in the last five years to, away from that to the less is more, uh, simply because our backlogs are so large. Um, access certainly has been dominated by a custodial model. Uh, and by that I mean we, we bring it in. We take the paper, we bring it in, we caress it, we kiss it, we love it, we, we, we keep it for future generations. We're there to protect it. Uh, and if you want to come and see it, uh, traditionally the idea was that uh, you can come and see it. Uh, certainly at Harvard, if you're an undergraduate, uh, you couldn't come to see it because undergraduates weren't allowed in the library. Uh, but at Berkeley, certainly we're a public library, uh, publicly supported facility, so we're there for the citizens of California or, or some such thing. Um, but the idea here is that you come to visit us. Now, um, who are the users that we're, we're actually seeing or traditionally have seen in special collections? Uh, in my opinion, and this is, of course, something that is the deep, dark secret of special collections, which we're not supposed to say to publicly, but let me just say it. Uh, traditionally, 90% of our users are people who are not affiliated with the university. It, when I was at Harvard, we did a user study of 10 of the main uh, archival repositories there, and we discovered that, in fact, 90% of our users were historians mainly from other universities. There was a, you know, a, a silence in the room when that, that was uh, uh, given at a conference. And, and of course, the idea here was that um, you're there to support your, your local constituency. They're the ones paying your salary. Um, but certainly at Harvard, though, they've always looked at themselves as a research library, a research university. Um, and I think that that was a very different perspective for them. They, did, they couldn't have, you know, if you got 10 users, that was fine uh, every year. I mean, it didn't matter to them. Uh, when I was at the Harvard Law School, I think we might have gotten 1,000 users a year, and, and it really didn't matter, uh, frankly. I still had a job uh, because Harvard was there for the research community. Um, and that certainly has been an attitude um, uh, with special collections. Uh, curators and, and, and staff. Now secondly, certainly in, in recent times, particularly at publicly supported universities like Berkeley, um, the focus has become much more on your campus clientele. Uh, and you will see great efforts have been made by Bancroft and other public universities, uh, special collections, to work with the students, uh, the undergraduate students, God forbid, um, and, uh, and your own faculty. Now, certainly this has been a, uh, taken a, a great effort on our part. Um, faculty usually don't want to be energized by anybody else but themselves, um, but uh, honestly. Uh, and undergraduate students are difficult to, um, uh, to uh, train and, and teach uh, how to do primary research. Um, usually that effort is, is done in the graduate level uh, in a history program, you will spend many years learning how to do uh, primary research, and that's usually been the traditional approach to it. Now, uh, certainly, uh, because in my opinion, there's been a lot of 
grant money available to K through 12 populations. We certainly like to play on whenever there's money, like anybody else, where there's money, we will go. And that certainly is, uh, I think, a part of anyone's uh, uh, efforts if they're looking for ways of getting their collections cataloged, like we, we are in special collections where many of the big places have half of their collections, particularly their archival collections, are in backlog. That means they're totally inaccessible. That's, in fact, the case at the Bancroft. Um, then we will try to find ways of going through existing programs as they, they come up. And as you all know, grants come and go uh, with fat, like fads. One year, it's um, at any age they want to do uh, digital uh, digitization in the humanities. Two years from now, they'll want to do something else. Um, but you have to play into that and see what you can get out of it. Uh, and it really is uh, part, as Anthony said, part of my job at Bancroft is to figure out what are the winds and which way are the winds going in order for us to maximize our uh, potential to get our collections out to the public, uh, even if I have to claim that we're going to do something K through 12. Well, most of those projects have been, uh, in my opinion, focused on digitization of our collections on thematic basis. Like we'll do Chinese in California and we'll uh, do that project with uh, five other institutions. We'll go out and try to digitize as much as possible and put that up on the online archive of California. And, and we'll use K through 12 money, even though potentially the, the main population will be our graduate students and, 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 um, and undergraduates. But look, it's still there, it's still available. Um, and it can be maximized. I think you'll see that um, in recent years, the Online Archive of California has uh, re-engineered a lot of that digital information. Uh, they're now calling it Calisphere, uh, and that really is for the purpose of uh, uh, providing evaluation and interpretive information about uh, existing digital uh, collections, uh, which, um, like Chinese in California, for example, which wasn't available when we did the project originally. We're just archivists. We, we digitize it, we'll describe it, we'll put it up into a finding aid, and we'll figure out ways of getting the digital object attached to the finding aid. But that's what we do. Um, we're not there to be teachers. Uh, that's not our job. At least that's not what we think our, that's our job. But we'll talk about that in a minute, right? Now finally, of course, Special Collections always thinks of itself as uh, important to the nation. Um, there's always this underlying, we're there uh, to preserve uh, human uh, memory and the cultural values uh, that are uh, contained in the material itself. And I certainly think that that has some, uh, some legitimacy. Um, maybe people don't often think about it that way, but um, you know, uh, on the outside of the National Archives is the quote, what is past is prologue. And I think that this certainly I think speaks to that, that, that notion that we believe that what we contain and preserve for the future generations is in this intrinsic uh, value that people uh, consider part of the human memory, the American experience. Okay. All right, now, uh, personnel. Um, most uh, special collections librarians hold an MLS. They have, in the main, been under, uh, undergraduate history majors, like myself. Um, 
Curators often hold a second sub subject degree. Um, you'll know that probably uh, there was a, a period of time, I think, about the 1980s, mid-80s, there was a move to, uh, with many library schools to add a second master's degree in history. Uh, Simmons, I think, still has that program. So does the University of Maryland at uh, College Park. Um, the idea was you get a master's degree in library science and an MA in history. Uh, so that they would, they would match and you would go out into the profession and become a curator or whatever. Um, directors of special collections libraries hold a PhD in a subject field. Uh, it's not a DED or an education degree, it's a PhD in history usually. Um, the director at the Bancroft, for example, has a PhD uh, in medieval um, uh, studies. and. Uh, and that is usually a common uh, occurrence across the country. 40% um, of the paraprofessional staff, uh, in my opinion, hold graduate degrees in unrelated subjects. Uh, I have many uh, staff who hold paraprofessional positions and they'll have a master's degree in Latin American studies or they'll have a, a master's degree in Sanskrit or some other field where they wanted to move into a library position for job security or something else, but um, they have uh, certainly uh, stayed in those positions and I, I have many of them in an academic environment, you see that often. Um, at Harvard, there were many PhDs who uh, felt very happy working in a paraprofessional appointment because they were at Harvard, they were just down the street from uh, you know, a rare collection of Chinese manuscripts that, that was their dissertation topic and they wanted to be there forever, right? for whatever the reasons. Um, there's certainly, uh, you see more often than not in special collections, particularly in archives, there's a lot of uh, short-term funding available. Uh, if you look at the job advertisements, uh, I do this myself, we get short-term appointments, one year, two years, uh, three years, uh, maybe even four, uh, so there's a lot of training that goes on and in special collections uh, and, um, and this is a way that people right out of library school or, or wherever um, their, they, their background has found uh, a way of getting into the field. Um, and some, um, most make it, uh, get their foot in the door and they, they move on. Um, and I think um, that's part of the experience at least from my perspective uh, is providing a training ground for people. Um, I better hurry up here. Now, uh, certainly 40% of the staff, as you all know, in libraries will retire in the next five years. That's true of um, special collections as well. And that, I think, uh, is an interesting issue with all of us. Uh, at Berkeley, we've been dealing for over a year and a half now with uh, a program called New Directions. And we're actually, it was stimulated by the fact that 40% of our staff at Berkeley in the library will retire in the next five years. Uh, what are we going to do with those positions? Are we going to make, uh, you know, if there's someone in the reference department in the social welfare library retires, are we going to fill that position or are we going to make it an electronic resources librarian position in the Doe main library? I mean, these are legitimate questions, I think. Um, and we are asking that too in Bancroft. Uh, I have a lot of efforts being made in Bancroft on digitization of collections. We have been doing that for 10 years now. We're going to continue to do it. Uh, but we don't, we've never had permanent staff doing that. It's always been slapped together by uh, grant money. Um, so 
we don't have an infrastructure for that. And I think, you know, this is a time period when we need to think about how are we going to manage that for the 21st century. Okay. All right. Um, funding, of course, in, in my opinion, for special collections comes from three sources. And at Bancroft, we, because we're a public institution, um, you'd, you see it breaking it down to one-third uh, from the home institution. Um, of course, at Harvard, um, it was a different scenario. You know, you, you might have a large collection, but you only have two people, your, you know, your entire existence there. That's all you're going to get. Um, they rarely went for grants the way we do at a public institution where we're much more aggressive about it. Um, and uh, so you see the breakdown there a little differently. But still, it's about endowments, um, home institution support, and gifts and grants. Um, um, we rely heavily on gifts and grants at Bancroft, as you can um, imagine. Um, physical plant. Uh, capital projects are always supported externally. Uh, this is true uh, currently at Bancroft. Uh, we were um, given money to do a seismic retrofit that came from state funds, but the renovation, which is $35 million, had to come from private sources. Uh, and that's a common experience with most, uh, most special collections uh, have to fundraise themselves for that. Um, where am I? Okay. Um, and um, I should say something about the physical plant in terms of its cost. Uh, most uh, special collections require temperature humidity controls. Um, if you have an extensive storage facility that's on site, that's very, very expensive to maintain that kind of thing. Um, we, we never had uh, temperature humidity controls at Bancroft. Uh, now we do, um, and we're finding it to be incredibly high maintenance uh, to keep the temperatures. We have four temperature zones in the stacks uh, from freezing, sub-freezing temperatures for our nitrate negatives to a uh, little bit above freezing. I mean, it all gets very complicated where the dew point has to be. And, and you know, when you're trying to calibrate and manipulate and manage that, it, you have a maintenance people over almost every day. Um, and I, I think that that's important to, to understand. Um, it's part of the, the whole deal. Now, public spaces require security. Uh, and certainly, um, within the Bancroft, our security is m much like the Fort Knox scenario. Um, we went from really having no security to now Fort Knox security, like everybody else does now. Um, you know, 200 cameras. Uh, uh, we have um, all over the buildings, uh, motion detectors everywhere. Uh, all the stuff had to be monitored. We had to buy the campus police department their own computer system, um, uh, you know, because it's all, all new, all brand new. And yes, it crashes every other day. Um, so there's been a learning curve. But this is also expensive, folks, uh, to manage. And we've had to hire uh, guards. We've never had guards, people who are actually guards for the Bancroft. Uh, um, but this is part of the deal. Um, and all of that costs money. OK. Um, now, there have been, in my opinion, in the last 10 years, uh, some significant changes in the way uh, special collections, you know, and archivists uh, have been thinking about um, uh, the way we do our business. And um, I believe that there have been some basic things that have occurred. First, there's a changing nature, in my opinion, of modern institutions. Um, there has been an, an increase in modern documentation. 
there, there certainly has been changing patterns of scholarship. Uh, and the automation and the emergence of electronic records has had a serious uh, influence on the way we do our business. And it will continue to, to be. Um, in fact, I hope that I'll be retired by that time, um, seriously, um, because it's all very different. Uh, now, that lays out the outline of what I want to talk about for a while. Um, the changing environment for new institutional environments is much more decentralized. Um, at Harvard, we called it every tub on its own bottom, uh, which basically meant that all the schools, the law school, the medical school, uh, the education school, they all had their own env uh, environments. They, they had their own dean, the dean ran everything. Uh, who, nobody actually knew who the president was um, or cared because the deans did their own fundraising. Um, and I thought, gee, that was just a terrible situation. And then I come to Berkeley and it's even worse. Uh, even, uh, within Bancroft, uh, I think uh, certainly um, Tech Services, which I manage, uh, has a, its own budget. I, I do my own basically fundraising by writing grants. Um, we manage uh, somewhat in isolation that way. Um, uh, the Mark Twain Project is completely separate from us, even though they share a building. They run their own uh, fundraising. They, they run their own program. And I might see them every once in a while. Um, but that's just, I think, an example of how things have basically flattened out. And you see a very, um, uh, I think, big change in uh, decentralization throughout institutions and companies and, and uh, not just universities. Um, so certainly we're seeing a flatter structure. There's been a breakdown in hierarchical structure. Uh, in my opinion, uh, we're shifting from a multi-layered hierarchy um, where you see that kind of organizational tree to a flatter, uh, almost TQM kind of uh, approach uh, with a horizontal structure. And certainly, we see uh, in our business uh, network, um, much more networked, much more open, much more outward thinking um, process uh, than ever before. And this certainly has affected uh, university archives. It's affected our collection of personal papers uh, in particular. Um, now, uh, there have been certainly new patterns and methods of work. Uh, that have come out of this. Uh, there's an altered flow of inter and intra-organizational information. Um, you'll see uh, the way that emails work, uh, the way that you share documents in, in that space um, with, with Word documents. Uh, Linda and I uh, are on a committee together and we shared documents uh, with multiple participants and we come out with a final document uh, representing uh, a number of different people's input. Um, there's less centralized communication patterns. Uh, I think you see a lot more use of instant messaging um, and, and other uh, ways of communicating than ever before. There's more horizontal uh, communication outside of the bureaucratic channels. Um, we, we have uh, a lot of blogs now at Berkeley and we had to pass a uh, a blog policy within Bancroft because many of our staff were just setting up blogs on their own and showing uh, collection material and, and just sending it out there. I and mean, there was no real way of controlling what they were doing. It was their blog, but they were using it on, at work. And so that seemed, I, not that that's bad, mind you, but it just seemed to me that um, we need to have an understanding of 
who's saying what about us um, if they're doing it at work time. Um, I guess that was the idea. But anyway, um, it's more difficult to predict the source of mission-critical records based on a hierarchical structure now. If you're a university archivist looking in traditionally at going to the office of the president or the chancellor and saying, gee, I can get everything there that's important about the university because it all flowed up. That's not the case anymore. Certainly not at a, a big institution and, and complex one like Berkeley where people are making decisions independently and may not have sent that document or record to that location. So there's been a much more horizontal effort. And so we have now archivists going much more aggressively at student organizations, for example. Okay. And then you see, uh, in my opinion, uh, born digital stuff. This stuff has uh, been a big influence, personal computers, on uh, the way we have collected and preserve and will manage uh, information that's created by individuals. Look, it's one thing to control uh, institutional records. I can go, if I have the authority as a records manager, to the office of origin and say, you're going to use Word, um, Microsoft Word, you're going to embed this metadata in Microsoft Word, and you're going to do what I say you're going to. I, I tell you because I've got the authority to tell you to do that. Well, suppose you did. I mean, not that I ever have any authority. I have all responsibilities, right? But the idea here is that with institutions, you have the way of getting through to, to set up all that information before it comes to you. With personal papers, you do not. Um, so you see a lot of efforts lately, uh, like DSpace, where you're trying to, we're trying to get faculty to set up their, their uh, databases in an official uh, server uh, that's supported by the university and so they can use that server space. The idea here is to try to get them to uh, save it. Uh, that's the first step at a, at a location we know where it's, it, it exists so we can, we can preserve it if we need to. We collect you know, faculty papers. If they're tenured we'll, and they die tomorrow, we'll take their papers. Well now, how am I gonna take their papers if I don't know where they are? If they're stored on Yahoo account or some other place? Uh, I, I couldn't the family have trouble getting their uh, material off of the Yahoo account themselves if they don't know the password. So this is, I think, our first step. And then the second step is once you know where it is, once you, it's there, then the idea then is to preserve it for, uh, for the future. And hopefully, if you get a data gift agreement that gives you the ownership of that in your repository, then you can make it accessible. And of course, then there's this other issues that have happened with digital capture. And I mentioned Google. Um, I, I use that as a benchmark because Google um, seemed to me in their efforts to digitize everything uh, that's printed, uh, of course, you all know that that is not everything. I mean, they're not, anything that's this big, uh, like our folios, is not being digitized by Google. Um, if it had foldouts, the foldouts are not being digitized. So, um, but it does seem to me uh, have an effect on the way we think about um, information and what will our role be in that. Now, um, there have been, in my opinion, some major things that have happened to special collections uh, that, that need to be mentioned um, rather quickly. Uh, the World War II generation, as you know, is now dying. Um, they're passing away, and as they pass away, they give uh, special collections their materials. 
um, we have seen a tsunami of paper. I am not uh, without paper right now. Um, at Bancroft, we have a very aggressive uh, uh, policy. Um, we take contemporary records. They decided to do that in, I think, the 1960s. And because of that, um, we will take anything uh, uh, someone creates. If we, we find it of value, then we will take it. Um, there's no cutoff. Uh, and that's, that's a little different than other special collections, frankly. They try to control it by saying, I won't take anything uh, after 1920. Um, that's what we did at the Maryland Historical Society. We just didn't have the staff to manage contemporary records. And that's been the problem. Uh, Post-World War II era has created so much paper uh, record that uh, we're drowning in it. And Bancroft has about 55,000 linear feet. That's like 55,000 cartons of material. Think of it that way. Um, half of that is not accessible to the public. Um, we haven't processed it. We just take it in, we box it up, we ship it to our off-site facility in Richmond, and then we make a mark record that says Joe Schmo's papers and call it a day and, and wait for money to come from him, manna from heaven to, to process it. And that's you know certainly been a slow manna from heaven process. So, um, And I should say that photographic images have come with that. Everybody has a camera. Uh, everyone, I'm sure in this room, has had a camera. You've taken lots of photos yourself. Um, and we have lots of photos. Uh, right now, I think our account for photos is about 8 million images, photographic images, believe it or not. Um, of course, the exam San Francisco Examiner donation uh, came with 3.6 million uh, images overnight. Um, and so it, it certainly increased the number of what we already had, a significant number. And I only have two full-time staff to manage that. So um, that's going to be an interesting process. I should mention, too, that it's all melting on the shelf. Uh, I didn't mention that. I should mention it again. It's melting on the shelf. Uh, the photographic history of America is melting on the shelf. Um, it's melting. So um, look, the other part of this is that uh, baby boomer generation, that's me. I guess I'm a baby boomer. Um, we love our audio and video. Um, and as you know, that's just rust on plastic. Um, I got a collection a couple of years ago of an individual, very important person in the area. Uh, interviewed uh, Black Panthers. He's interviewed, you know, uh, social movement people in the area. Um, I have 25,000 cassette tapes, and they're all melting. Um, basically, there's no way that I could possibly deal with all that. So, the problem is, of course, quantity of material. Again. Um, we will have to be very selective in what we keep because in order to keep it, we have to change it to another medium. And in order to do that, it's very expensive, folks. Um, now, Gen X, I, I don't know. I could, after the baby boomers, there have been a lot of you know, generations. Like, I'll call them Gen X, OK? Uh, the younger people in the room. Uh, you're Gen X. Um, uh, after 9-11, uh, the Library of Congress, as you may know, uh, decided six months after the event to start preserving web pages, just web pages. And they were able to find over 30,000 web pages related to the 9-11 experience. This is an amazing amount of information um, that we are now trying as special collections archivists to figure out how do we preserve this stuff. I mean, first of all, how do we capture it? How do we preserve it? So there's been an incredible amount of information, explosion, I think, as you see, 
a much more populist-based uh, experience in our country where anybody can create a web page. I mean, my grandmother could create a web page, for God's sakes. I mean, it's really that simple anymore. Um, that's very true of blogs, too, and that's why I think you see the blog software is much so easier to use, and I think that's why you see a lot of activity in it. Okay, how am I doing here on time? Um, look, there's also been changes in, in scholarship, um, and I think quickly uh, you all know this, this interdisciplinary work now being done. Uh, cultural studies are, uh, are a, high, a, a hot topic. Um, certainly the social construction of culture. There's much more focus on race, uh, sex, class issues. Um, there's much more intertextuality. And I mean by that, in my opinion, when you're looking at um, web pages, for example, there's going to be a hundred different things going on. We created an earthquake and fire uh, exhibit at Bancroft, and I've got streaming with you know uh, 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 certain uh, uh, files types. Um, I've got uh, images. I've got uh, textual material and TEI text encoded initiative uh, TEI coding. I've got HTML encoded stuff. I've got XML encoded material, all embedded in that one. Page. When, so when you're looking at it, you're looking at 5, 10, 20 different kinds of file types and, and 20 different types of, of information going on at the same page. This is going to create an incredible amount of work for us to preserve that because all of that's stored in different places. The, the streaming stuff is stored at Berkeley. The, the finding aid data is stored at OAC. Uh, so, you know, it's all over the place. It's all over the map. And, and when we look to how to, to preserve that, this is going to be a great challenge, to, I think, to our profession. Okay. Um, and then um, you see changing form of documents. And, and I certainly we've talked a little bit about that so far. Um, electronic documents are no longer just uh, inert physical entities. Um, this is kind of hard for my archivist to wrap their head around. Um, because we're so used to get, going to a file cabinet, looking at the paper, seeing that it's in folders, it has, the folder has a title, and, and they're in some kind of a logical sequence of information, and you can take them out, put them in a box, and write out in a finding aid what that stuff is. With electronic records, it's very different. People don't keep things in, especially personal papers, they don't keep them in nice, neat folders and directories and the names of the folders might be goofy and there's no way to actually open it up you know, quickly in order to es estimate like you could with a random sampling with paper-based stuff. And this whole notion of series that we have in our in archives profession, which forms the basis of our understanding of how things are organized, is quickly, I think, going away. Um, and that is because I think we have so many different kinds of file types. That is database views. We have virtual documents, hypermedia, dynamic documents, email, um, and trying to capture and, and preserve what's of value, permanent value, is, is what, what we're, we're all about, is becoming much more complicated. All right, now, this is also affected, as I said, personal papers and institutional records. Okay, now, um, there are big concerns for us in special collections and archives. Uh, the rapid rate of technological change has affected stability. Look, I have papyri that are 4,000 years old in my collection, 
and I know they'll be around for 4,000 years, more. Uh, can any of us in this room say that about our electronic records, with things that are made born digital? I doubt that we can say that with any confidence. And, and this has been a big problem with, with us in the field. How are we going to stabilize this information for future generations? What is that going to be? What's it going to look like? I mean, we're talking about this at um, the California Digital Library. They've established what they call the Digital Preservation Repository. And that's, you know, that's a nice idea. They, you know, we're going to store stuff on a server down at CDL. Well, what are they going to do with that? I mean, there's no real uh, claim by them. If I asked them to their face, are you, can you guarantee that this stuff's going to be around for 100 years? They can't make that claim. And I think that studies have shown that that's just not going to be the case. So how are we going to handle this stuff, I think, is a, a big issue. Um, we also have to be concerned, as uh, we are engaged in authenticity, we have to make sure that these files are complete, authentic, and reliable. Uh, this is a big problem, as you know, with electronic files. I mean, there really are just zeros and ones. That's all they are. They're just zeros and ones. And they can be manipulated fairly easily. And I think uh, archivists may have kind of gotten to a point of paranoia about it that uh, exceeds our capacities to come to a reasonable uh, and confidential, uh, a confident uh, position on this. But I think um, we, we need to be concerned about that and continue to be concerned about it. Um, so some of the solutions that we've worked around on this is certainly open uh, source software, um, building uh, software that is platform less, it's not based on certain uh, proprietary platforms, um, and certainly the efforts to create um, a, um, uh, the encoded archival description was a move by archivists to at least have their um, description of the collections done in a platformless um, manner, uh, which is now then now moved to XML. And I think you'll see that there's much more efforts being made in XML in terms of converting records themselves from Word files to XML files uh, in a way to get access to them. All right, now, um, quickly, um, uh, where am I here? I backed up, okay. Um, there are, um, this is the life uh, of, of special collections in this future world. I, I want to make some predictions here. You know, I, you know, this is a great thing about predicting the future. You can be wrong, uh, and, and no one will, will know it, uh, at least in another a few months, unless this is being streamed still. No one will know that David was wrong. All right, so um, let, me, let me just predict here. Uh, the library, the Special Collections Library as a place is going to change. We're going to see drastically less people coming into our facility because we are not going to actually have the material. It's going to be electronic. It's born digital. I, I go to people's homes now and they give me their hard drive. That's their personal papers. So I don't need you know, to print that off on paper, do I? I mean, look, in, in fact, uh, how long is paper going to be around, folks? I mean, who's going to, I'll make a prediction. 50 years from now, there won't be paper. There won't be any paper. And if we're at that situation, like gasoline, then there's no gas anymore. Um, uh, it's cer certainly, it seems to me, 
this is what's going to happen. We're going to go completely in an electronic world where people will not have to come into our facility anymore. Um, they will have to come into the facility to see that rare book, sure. But in my opinion, um, I think that that's going to affect us in different ways. Now, the qualifications for um, special collections people and their role is going to change significantly. I, I see this happening already. Curators are now more than ever less engaged in collection management. They're engaged in outreach and education and, uh, and solicitation of collections. That's what they're engaged in, and I think that that's going to continue into the future. They're going to be expected to have, in my opinion, subject degrees. They're going to be expected to understand and interpret, evaluate information for their clientele more than ever. Um, also, archivists are going to become data managers. Uh, I think you see them call, being called data curators. Um, and whether or not that work is going to continue to be done in a library, I don't know. Uh, the more uh, efforts I see being undertaken by our campus IT department uh, leads me to suspect that, that this, these positions may end up being under IT rather than under library's uh, umbrella. And so that may shift completely. Um, secondly, I think you'll see an, a change in the organizational infrastructures of special collections. Um, as, as these things change and potentially personnel diminish, uh, at least in the library area, they may be shifted over to other areas on campus that are more mission critical. Um, and of course, uh, we have all this paper still. Um, and I think the library will become much more of a museum uh, where the curators will be engaged in actually uh, interpreting, just like they do in an art museum, um, specific items. And I already see this happening. Um, the curators are more and more showing our undergraduate students items from the collection as artifacts rather than looking at the collection at the collection level um, and being engaged in it that way. All right, in the paperless world, what will we collect? Um, it will be, in my opinion, uh, completely uh, electronic records. Um, and we will continue, in my opinion also, to be uh, aggressive with digital capture to turn that stuff that we own into digital uh, formats. Um, there's no question that that's going to change. Uh, the archivists have, I think, also questioned the idea of custody. Uh, I, I think that um, there's been some debates about uh, whether institutional records particularly should come to the Special Collections and Archives. Uh, you may know the National Archives of Australia tried that. Um, it didn't work very well uh, because they found after time um, the Office of Origin may not have had the expertise to preserve the material. Uh, they may not have had the personnel necessary with the appropriate training to, to preserve the material uh, and or they didn't have the necessary equipment to migrate to newer versions or uh, again to protect the material. Um, so it seemed to have failed uh, somewhat in a non-custodial approach at least with government records. And I think that there's also was a fear that with uh, certainly uh, changes in the administration in the government, there are different perspectives about what should be preserved and what shouldn't. Um, we certainly have had that 
uh, problem um, in this country and uh, with the two Bush administrations. Not to pick on them, but I'm picking on them. Um, uh, they, they have a very different perspective of what should be kept. Um, uh, and so I think um, we're also going to see uh, much less description being done. Already, Green and Meisner, an article written a few years ago by uh, two archivists, um, has, uh, has affected our profession. Our backlogs are immense. Um, our, our purpose in being is to make things accessible to the public. That's what we're there for. We're not just to preserve it. We're to make it accessible to the public. And so uh, less is more is the, the new uh, theme for the day. And I think you're going to continue to see that. Particularly with electronic records, uh, you're going to continue to see less is more because all you're going to get is metadata. And metadata is less, frankly. Um, it's an idea that, you know, even descriptive metadata, we, if we reuse marked data, it is not as, as comprehensive as we have done in the past with our, our um, material. It simply hasn't been um, as descriptive. Uh, as, as we would have uh, hoped it could be. It's, we just don't have time to do that. Um, all right, uh, and then uh, access. Um, access, to me, is an interesting idea, too. If all these files, in some you know, great world, uh, that we can churn them out, uh, you sit at your terminal, you want to look through the Joe Jones papers and the Ted Jones papers, or maybe you don't even want, care about that, but your subject is artvarks. You type in artvarks. It's going to give you a list of correspondence from Joe Jones papers, um, a diary from uh, Joe Schmo, and it'll be listed for you. And you can go through multiple items, items at the item level by doing that kind of search query. So it's basically laying on top of that data in whatever file format it might be. And I'll look, the National Archives is trying to work through this with emulation software and, and see how they might be able to layer that on top of it. If we could turn this stuff maybe into XML, which we as special collections people have had a lot more experience, then we could, we could do broad-based searches in XML. Um, I'm not saying I know how that's going to be done, but certainly there, are, there is work happening right now to see how that can be done. Um, and I think that you're getting away from, again, this collection-based concept that we have in Special Collections and Archives, and you're getting people what they really want is the items related to their topic. And then finally, I think funding is going to change. Um, and I, I think um, certainly we're going to see um, a lot uh, less money be being given to Special Collections as there's more ramping up uh, and competition for funds on campus for other things. Uh, for undergraduates, for graduate students, for, for even in the, the library. Um, so we're going to see an increase in special collections people in grant competition, because uh, we all go to basically four places, you know, IMLS, NEH, and HPRC, um, and Mellon. And that, that's, that's where, you know, we've gotten, we've gotten our money from. And I think that that's going to be, because of the competition, you're going to see much more uh, uh, larger projects where uh, you're doing multiple institution uh, requests and you get less money. Because uh, if I've got five institutions asking for $100,000, I only get 20, not 100. It's just simple math. Um, so there you have it. Um, 
I think my, uh, my, my post-mortem. All right, here's my post-mortem. I think special collections are still important and will engage to be important no matter what the, the media is. Look, information of what, what we, we collect, we're collecting information about our past. Um, it is still and will be a key resource uh, and an exploitable asset. Um, certainly, uh, we also do this because of risk management. We want to be able to learn and, and understand uh, how to uh, avoid uh, dangers in the, in, uh, that have occurred in the past. You know, what's past is prologue. The whole idea behind that is that we learn from our mistakes, right? Uh, we don't have white papers, hopefully, over and over again about disasters that have happened, we hope. Um, we allow for informed decisions based on the past. Um, we provide permanent evidence of rights, obligations, and entitlements. We support the rule of law and provide accountability. Um, we provide education, research, and personal enrichment. And uh, we communicate uh, social, political, and cultural values. Those will still remain to be important. And of course, we will remain to be a repository of human memory. And I believe that those are assets that have enduring value, uh, not just to the institution, the university, but to society as a whole. Thank you very much.